1: Dismantling systematic racism and asking our country to face its sins is a big lift. We are starting at different places. We are facing different challenges. There is not going to be a simple answer or one path forward. This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the
0: home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pants Politics. I'm glad that Sarah and I are back together. There is plenty to discuss today. As we get into it, we're going to go through some of the headlines over the past few days. We're going to spend our main segment really focused in on some of the questions and reactions we're seeing from listeners to the episodes of last week, especially the conversation about how white people respond when we're having a national dialogue about systemic racism. And we'll end as we always do with what's on our minds outside of politics.
1: I feel really bad for taking this little road trip with my family and not alerting all of you guys. Because in a year like 2020, leaving you to guess while I was not on Friday's show or on the news brief was probably not the best. And I apologize, but I am safe. Uh, We had a nice little trip with, if you follow us on Instagram, a couple of bumps in the road. But again, what? sort of break in 2020 would not include some bumps in the road. So I'm happy to be back here. I thought your conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper was inspiring, encouraging, challenging in the best possible way. And I love the idea of opening the conversation on how to reexamine criminal justice and police forces generally. And so that kicked off for me, just like lots of reading and research on this idea of defunding the police, which, honestly, I I had not even heard of before. And I think that's where a lot of people in America are right now. They're hearing these three words together. They're feeling confused, scared, challenged by this idea. But I mean, we had major news over the weekend that the Minneapolis City Council uh, voted 9 out of 13, so a veto-proof majority, to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. And so this went from not on anybody's radar to everywhere pretty quickly. There
0: certainly have been police abolition discussions in the works for some time. I think even that phrase is difficult for us to get our arms around. And I know that many of you had a really negative reaction to just the title of our last episode, Imagining a World Without Police. I think it's important to hear not a world without any mechanism for law enforcement, but a world in which we fundamentally go back to the drawing board on what we're trying to accomplish. I followed up Friday's episode with a brief discussion on Instagram saying, here are, to me are the next questions. And there are lots of them. What do our communities really need? What can we learn from the way policing exists today? An you know, example I gave on Instagram is something my husband and I have been talking about a lot. So many police officers die when they respond to domestic violence incidents. Okay, well, that's not helpful to either party, right? We know that domestic violence is underreported. Because many people feel that getting the police involved only makes the situation worse. And we know that many police officers' lives are at risk when they respond to those calls. So how can we do that better? You know, when you hear phrases like defund the police, you don't need to instantly go to this really defensive place. That, that is not a criticism of every law enforcement officer or action. It is just a recognition, I think, that this entire system has some pretty negative outcomes for everybody, including people who wear the uniform. How can we do better?
1: The other thing that was everywhere over the weekend was this polling that said 80% of Americans think the country is out of control. You know how I feel about polling. Do I think this is reflective of every American's opinion? I don't know, but I, I do know that it follows in the footsteps of lots of polling we hear every year. So many Americans don't think the country is on the right track. So many Americans don't have trust in our institutions and think that they are fundamentally flawed. You're even seeing dramatic shifts in polling among white Americans about whether they think there is racism in law enforcement. Just everybody, I think, is having this sort of aha moment. You know, I posted on Instagram that I think 2020 is just shaking stuff loose. Okay? So none of us are really happy with where we're at so ask yourself why the idea of fundamentally rethinking one of these institutions is so challenging if we don't like where we're at then why not try to go somewhere different and i know that is hard you know even my mother and my grandmother who are both interested in Rethinking things. I said, defund the police. And they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm like, is it? Is it ridiculous? I don't think many Americans would have a problem with the idea that our law enforcement spend a majority of their time dealing with mental illness and drug addiction. Do you think force incarceration Law enforcement generally is the best way to deal with those two things. And they were like, well, no. And I'm like, okay. And we've been defunding education. My mother and my grandmother are both educators for years. Do you have any disagreement with shifting money from enforcement to education? Well, no. Okay, then why did you have that reaction? If we don't like where we're at, We don't like where we're spending our money. Don't let Donald Trump frame this in a way that's be afraid, be afraid. There's going to be lawlessness on the streets. We are all smarter than that. Every single one of us. And I've had a lot of messages. Well, maybe we need to think of a better way to advertise this. This isn't a marketing problem. Like, and it doesn't, we don't need to go down a road of let's make this palatable to everybody. All I ever hear on, you know, Facebook and conversations about politics is a person who, who engages in political conversations. Is this idea that, well, I just want the information so I can decide for myself. OK, cool. That's fine. Do this now. Now's the time, everybody. Now's the time to everybody to step into that. I want to be the independent thinker. I want to do the research. Don't just respond to those three words. Do the research. Read some articles. Don't think that the entirety of policy proposals and prioritization is wrapped up in the three words, defund to the police, because it's not. And you know it's not. I'll never forget Cory Booker one time say, everybody talks about infrastructure, right? The joke, it's been infrastructure week for four years. We all want more investment in our streets and in our schools and in our bridges And he's like, well, we spent that money on prisons. That's the infrastructure we built in the 80s and the 90s. We poured it into prisons and policing and the military. And so defund doesn't mean stop doing it all. It means stop pouring money into that. We want to put the money somewhere else. And I hope that we can all just take a moment and think about that. I don't think that's radical. I don't think it's radical to say we don't like where the money's being spent. It doesn't reflect our priorities as a nation. We want to start spending money in different places.
0: And I think those different places are going to vary by community. And I think the approach to this whole thing is going to vary by community. This is where we are fortunate to live in a model where states can take the different approaches. Individual cities need to and should have their own conversations and are having those conversations. And we're going to learn a lot from each other. And that's important. And we're going to do things that do not work. And we're going to do some things that are effective on the whole, but have some very problematic parts. I've been thinking a lot about the jobs report and how much lower the unemployment number was than expected. And there are modeling issues around that, to be sure. But also, we took really dramatic action, and it seems to have had a positive effect. As problematic as aspects of the Paycheck Protection Program are and were and will continue to be, the net effect seems to be that more people are employed than we thought could be at this point. And that's a big deal. So we tried something. We got a lot of it wrong. It was super clumsy. And still we did some good. And that's how these kinds of efforts are going to go too. Different cities are going to try things. They're going to get a lot of it wrong. And still on the whole, hopefully they're going to do some good. We have to have the patience to allow that to work. And we have to have the sense overall that we're trying to serve a higher purpose. I am sort of obsessed right now with John Craigie's music. And when I use the word obsessed, I mean more like his mom must be so proud than he's so dreamy. He really makes me aware of my age. But he has this song called Manifesto where he says, if my generation is going to accomplish anything the artists of this generation have to believe that we can be better than Beethoven and Bob Dylan and all of the great artists who came before us. And maybe that sounds arrogant, but that's the only way that you can make progress is if you look at the past and say, I believe that we have the potential to collectively exceed this. And it just touches me so much. And I think that that's kind of the the attitude that I want to have about this conversation on law enforcement, that we can have respect for the good that has been done over time by individual police officers. We can have respect for the sacrifices that police and their family members have made. We can have respect for how far law enforcement has come, and it has. A lot of good work has been underway on community policing and a bunch of other reforms. And we can also have the, the courage To think, but maybe we could do even better. And the fortitude to try that
1: and to be patient with the
0: really difficult process of doing even better.
1: I completely agree. You know, my birthday is at the end of July, I'll be turning 39. And I am so incredibly inspired by the younger generations of activists who are pushing and really forcing us all to see the world differently, to see that, you know, changes on the margins are not going to get this done. And, you know, this is a weird story, but just go with me here because it's what I keep thinking about. You know, when I took the bar exam after my first son was born, he was like three months old. And I was breastfeeding and it was a terrible situation because I had to take the exam for hours and hours. And as every breastfeeding mother knows, that doesn't work. Like I was in so much physical pain by the time the break came. And a couple years later, a woman younger than me sued and said, who was also breastfeeding and said, you can't make me do this. This is unacceptable. Like I have to have breaks. And she won. And I thought it didn't even occur to me. Like, it didn't even occur to me to stand up and say, you can't make me do this. This is wrong. And that's a silly, privileged example. But it just, it's that moment where someone younger, often someone younger, but not always, but someone with a bigger vision says, you know, you're chopping away this tree and we have to plant a different forest. Like, this isn't going to get it done. This isn't working. This isn't working. We have to do something else. And I think about how many conversations we've had on this podcast about trust in institutions and how to build trust and how often I don't think, well, we need a new institution. We need a new institution. And that's what this call is. The call is the system that we've built has not worked. It is not Working and it will not work with just reform. You know, I had this conversation with my stepdad about the writing. I said, You saw, you lived through 1968, rolling in as the country of law and order, pres- law and order, you know, law and order, law and order. Like, did it work? We're back in the same spot. Does it feel like it worked to you? It didn't. And you know, that's not to say that progress wasn't made. But I want a bigger vision. I want people who see a totally different world leading the way. And that to me is what this feels like. This feels like people saying, hey, we got to think bigger. We got to think bigger. And if hundreds of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of people across the globe can't lead us all to the realization that something very big is happening here, then we're not paying attention. We're going to talk more
0: about responding to this call in a minute. But before we do, um, speaking of hundreds of thousands of people, there is a discussion happening, especially from conservative media, about the hypocrisy of public health experts as they're framing it, that public health experts have told us we should not congregate in groups. Yet you see Um, support for these protests from public health experts. And I think that this is a difficult thing to talk about wisely, because on the one hand, I am concerned that we are all sort of like, well, we're done with COVID-19 now. Things are opening back up, back to life. And I see that just in my own experience of like the grocery store, that there are fewer masks every time I go there's just clearly a relaxation happening that makes me concerned about what the fall is going to look like. And at the same time, I think it's true that if you look at the numbers in terms of what a public health crisis consists of, racism is a huge part of that. Now, do I think that these protests are going to cure racism? No, I do not think that that goal is even available to us within one or two, maybe three generations. I do understand public health professionals saying this needs to be done carefully. Please wear your mask. Please stay as distant as you can. And also, when people have a cause to advocate for that so directly ties into the outcomes that we see from COVID 19, for example, and many other aspects of our healthcare system, uh, we can hold these two things together. That's how I'm viewing it, Sarah. I'm curious what your thoughts are.
1: Um, I thought it was very grace-filled that you described this as a discussion, uh, for one thing, because it felt like a smug gotcha to me. But look, we're all adults here, okay? And I trust health professionals to make their own choices about whether they want to come to the street to protest and to give the best advice available and then for Americans to make their choices. And that includes, you know, Months ago, when states were opening, before it seemed wise, right? People made their choices about their elected officials. People made choices about whether to follow those elected officials or not, because I think the most important takeaway about public health and public health advice is that it cannot be punitive. You know, we talked about very early here a report from the American Enterprise Institute about how to reopen, and they emphasize over and over and over again, like, it cannot be punitive. You have to you have to empower and inspire people to follow the directions the best they can and then you have to let them make their own choices. And, you know, that's where we're at, right? I think everybody I think what's happening honestly at this point is I can't tell you if this is <laughs> if this is good or bad, but everybody is like so far in. We're months and months into living with a global pandemic. The terminology, the science is not all new. That does not mean that every individual American is an expert or a virologist, of course not. But, you know, it's not that disjointed, oh my gosh, I don't even know what this means, sort of overwhelming of information and fear of the unknown that we felt so profoundly, I think, in March. I think some of that is dangerous because people feel like, I know enough and I don't need a mask or whatever. But for better or for worse, I think we're in the spot where people feel like they have at least a handle on the virus and what the virus causes, some of us better than others. Um, And I think that's what you're seeing um, with this sort of, I don't know if it's America is over it. It's just America feels like they understand it. And look, I mean, I think that's true. I think for better or for worse, we do have a better understanding of um, the virus and the pandemic and the cost, and that's not. 100% One hundred percent across the board, perfect because it's a big co- country with lots of people with lots of different um, backgrounds and perspectives. But I just think people feel like I've got I've got enough handle on the information to make these calls for myself. Whether I want to protest, whether the the risk of um, COVID outweighs the desire to make my voice heard, and that's what you're seeing. I think another thing that's really going on here is less about
0: what is allowed in that sense of we're reopening now you are allowed to make more of your personal risk calculus and more about what is celebrated and about the fact that people don't like that they felt guilted or shamed about activities like going to church for a time and now folks are being celebrated for going to protest. we are so bad In 2020, and I think for a few years we've been pretty bad at this, at delineating between what you have a right to do versus what you have a right to do without any kind of consequence or any sort of sense of how other people view what you've done. And that's what I think this conversation comes down to that people just don't like that what they wanted to do got side eye and what other people choose to do is being celebrated.
1: No, I think you're right. I think this is this is the undercurrent of so much. This is under this is the undercurrent of the Obama presidency. This is the undercurrent of the 2016 election. This is the something I used to feel proud about, now the culture wants me to feel ashamed about. You see that in so many areas. I think you're exactly right.
0: Well, the media is having a big debate right now and we wanted to chime in to some extent on that debate. And I think it's related. So you probably have heard the New York Times made a very controversial decision to publish an editorial from Senator Tom Cotton in which he advocated use of the military to disperse the protest. And they titled it Send in the Troops. The outrage from the newsroom was immediate. You had a lot of New York Times reporters tweeting that publishing this editorial endangered Black colleagues at the Times. You had a long defense of the decision. Then you had, oops, that didn't meet our editorial standards. And then uh controversy over the fact that the times came up with that headline. I mean, it's just it's been a lot. Tom Cotton is fundraising off of his um shakeup of the media. Sarah, I don't know. I'm so we haven't talked about this at all. What really struck me about the entire fiasco here was that it is a good reminder that so much media is concentrated in so few geographies in the United States. And I think this whole discussion um, is a point in favor of greater diversity, uh, geographic diversity in that sort of power of media, because it really is just too much for the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal to be the arbiters of what opinion writing in major newspapers should look like. I feel like this would have played out differently if there were a major Midwestern or major even Western media source having a discussion
1: about this instead of it being so New York bubble centric. One of the most fascinating parts of this to me, and that speaks to exactly the geographic uh, centrality that you just talked about, is all of you out there with hyper-conservative relatives who bash on the mass media and particularly the New York Times, just refuse to even, don't send them a link from the New York Times, forget it, get out of here with that. If you told them, oh, by the way, did you know that this, <laughs> this weekend liberal slash progressive Twitter turned on the New York Times so hard, not for the first time, like they were mad about another headline about Trump a few days earlier. This is not the first sort of controversy from the New York Times opinion page. Like, you know, I think they'd be shocked. I think they think that the New York Times is just lockstep in line with liberal activists and liberal elites. And it just goes to show you that that is not true. And, you know, I don't think that that means that the liberal activists on Twitter are wrong and that they should have published that Tom Cotton editorial, you know, to me at a time when we're having such important, deep, interesting conversations about these protests and what they mean and why they are happening and how people should respond. Tom Cotton's input was like the least interesting, least productive contribution to that conversation humanly possible. Not that I don't think that there are interesting um, conservative perspectives to be had about this conversation, but like that was not one of them. And also at the same time, like I don't know if the way the New York Times responded was productive either. In, in part because you like it said, it was this sort of disjointed let us defend ourselves now this dude's resigning. I think it's just reflective as like several other sort of media controversies over the weekend of that this is another institution that is 2020 is shaking stuff loose from, you know, like it this is not the first controversy that speaks to these themes. It won't be the last. Media is going through an intense time of transformation. It is also under an enormous amount of pressure because of the attacks from the Oval Office, because of the violence um, directed at journalists during these protests. It's, you know, it's a intense environment right now. And I think that you can see that at every step of the process in the story.
0: Yeah, I don't think there is a right answer to should they have run this editorial or not. I agree with you that it is about the least interesting contribution that conservative world could make to the discussion. And also, he's a sitting United States senator who is not quiet about his aspiration to be the president one day. Rest assured that if Donald Trump loses dramatically, we will see Tom Cotton attempt to refashion himself and i think it's good to have artifacts that hold people accountable to who they really are, who they chose to be in different times as we understand their leadership. i am never going to be mad at a newspaper for printing something because i think newspapers are there to print things even when i find them reprehensible. i i would rather know than not know how people feel when they're in positions of power like tom cotton, so I think this was more about the Times internal process and how they communicate with one another internally. And I think there's something healthy about that being shaken up. A lot of institutions need to have the conversation that seems to be unfolding at the New York Times right now. And also, I think it's too much for the New York Times to hold that for the entire press or for all those other institutions that need to be having that discussion right now.
1: Well, speaking of Donald Trump losing in a dramatic fashion, former Secretary of State Colin Powell came out and said he is endorsing Joe Biden for president. What do you think about all that this weekend, Beth? And Mitt Romney. We also have Mitt Romney marching in the Black Lives Matter march, too.
0: Well, Mitt Romney made the most impact for me because he is someone who is currently in office. He's an elected official in office. He has been accused for his entire career of being a flip-flopper, and I really appreciate that he seems to be comfortable with just saying, you know, um, you can call me that, but I'm going to stand on the courage of my convictions. It meant a lot to me that he said with his feet and with his words and his Twitter account, the Black Lives Matter, to have someone in Republican leadership saying that I think is important. I don't think it's everything. I don't think it's enough. I don't care if you vote for Mitt Romney again or not, if you live in Utah, but it matters a lot to me that he did that. It matters to me that Colin Powell spoke out. I think that it's important for all of the kind of Republicans who believed, I thought, something close to what I believe about federalism and the power of local government. I would like them to say we see nothing of ourselves in this president and at this moment in history, we might not agree with him on everything, but we think Joe Biden is the right person. I, th- I think that's important. Do I think it will move the 38, 40 percent of people who really think Donald Trump is is doing a great job? I do not. And I think it will be ammunition for them because I think when you're in this space of believing that poor Donald Trump is the victim of the entire world, you can't get out of that space, at least not through the lens of someone like Colin Powell's reflections. But gives me a little bit of hope, you know, that there's something to build off of in the future. Maybe it's not the Republican Party, but something else. And I always like people saying what is true. And, you know, I, I struggle because we're so hard, we, Twitter is so hard on Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and the people who are kind of supposed to be better than Matt Getz or um, John Cornyn, Ted Cruz. And so I don't want to beat up on her because I have so much respect for her, but I was really sad to read the comments from Senator Murkowski after General Mattis's opinion piece came out, where she said, this is necessary and it's true and it's overdue. And perhaps we're reaching a point where we need to say so, like that we we reached that point a while back, Senator, and you know that <laughs> and, you, and your previous comments tell us that, you know, that and I really want her to just say. You know what? I've served in the Senate a long time. If I lose my seat in Alaska for telling the truth, then I do. I just I need more of that from people. I need that from Democrats and Republicans, more people just willing to say what Andy Bashir has said here in Kentucky. If I lose for doing what I think is right,
1: then I do. To me, this 2020 conversation, who are you going to vote for? What I really appreciate about Colin Powell is not just that he said, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, but he was like, let's not mince word. He lies. Like, he's a liar. Like, it's just the really straightforward, let's face this. Like, I just, but, you know, the idea that we're having any kind of (laughs) reporting on the campaign strategy of Donald Trump to me is a little surreal at this point. And the polling even feels a little surreal. Do you need polling to look around and think that this is not being handled in the most competent manner possible? Like, You've got the rock out there saying, what's going on? What else do you need? Like <laughs> It seems so sort of superfluous. Oh, people think that Joe Biden would do a better job? Really? Like, I just, I don't want to be flipped, but like, how could you possibly even imagine a scenario in which you're like, that, yeah, four more years of this, it's going really well. I just, I don't know. It's kind of like every time I'm like, oh, right, we're going (laughs) to we're having an election. Is it's just it feels very. Surreal, it's like this weird paradox where voting is the most important thing. And also just the tip of the iceberg, you know, like it's just it's this very weird posture. I feel like when we talk about the election in November, be it because of Colin Powell, who he's voting for or polling or whatever, like oh, yeah, we need to vote him out. And also that will be the first tiniest baby step of working on what is wrong in America right now. We are special breakfast people here at Pansu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain com
0: Well, you know, I had a chat with Lisa Sharon Harper on Friday and there were some reactions to it. <laughs> and it is important to me to spend time with and on all of those reactions because I do think... As we consider here at Pantsuit Politics, how do we best contribute to a conversation about systemic racism when we're two white ladies in Kentucky? That the best answer to me is we can be that space that creates a big table where we say we love and are with and express solidarity to the black and brown people at this table. And we love and will listen to and will hold hands with the white people at this table who are at varying points on their journey in how they think about systemic racism. I think we got to do all of those things. And so Sarah and I were talking about this and thinking maybe today we, we should talk about the reactions that we have heard from three different categories of white people to that conversation. And also, before we dive into that, to say we get most of our mail from white people, whether that be DMs or tweets or emails. And we want to make sure that we're doing a good enough job with our voices in saying how very meaningful it is when we hear from people who are not white Christians and who are not in heterosexual marriages, like, it means a lot to us when we have visibility in those messages from everybody that we know is at our table. And so we're going to focus on three categories of white people who responded to Friday's episode today. And also we want to say we know our table is bigger than that, and we value everybody at it. And we really want, to the extent that you feel
1: moved to talk with us, we want to hear from everybody. One of the most common reactions we get from Friday show or really since the death of George Floyd and even previous conversations about systematic racism or truly a lot of systematic problems in the United States, is this desperate, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And look, you know, we could pontificate for hours about the result of a culture that tells us, you know, what you produce, how you are efficient, how you are productive is what matters, okay? So we could do that for hours. We're not gonna do that because we've already been talking for a while. But I get it. I have it. And it is important We need actions. We need results. And also, as I've said on this podcast a million times, this is not math. Okay, so we're not going to, you know, there's not a printable that I can that I can give everybody that says we're going to do these five things and, you know, our participation in a racist culture will be absolved. Okay, so it's just not going to work like that um, ever. That's not to say that there aren't things we can do. We're going to put a link to Michelle Alexander's really brilliant editorial in The New York Times. She's the author of The New Jim Crow and just one of the most, I think, thoughtful leaders, particularly with regards to criminal justice reform. She has a literal list at the bottom. This is where we can start. Um, You know, there's a million Resources as far as podcasts and documentaries and books. And one of my favorite things she says is, yeah, start there, but then go out, start groups, you know, become a disciple, baby. Like go out there and spread the word, have conversations in your community, in your school systems, at your police departments about what this history means. We, but we're just, as we begin to learn, which is a really important part of this process, it's we're not ever going to be done. We're not going to check that learning off our list. We're going to have to sit with and process some really uncomfortable truths about our histories, about our privilege. And that's not work that's going to be done ever. Because what we're doing, this, this what can I do, is to fundamentally reimagine and rewrite your own value system. And that is lifelong work. And it is hard work. And it is work that never ends. It is character building work because it's something that we don't ever check off. And so, you know, I think that we all have to be aware of that need to check it off because that's not what this is. I think that is hard, and it is and can be exhausting. And that's okay. I feel like I say this so much, it should be on a bingo card. We're a big, complex country, and human beings are complex, and everybody is a different step in this process. And so for somebody coming to this realization for the very first time, reading a history book like Stamp from the Beginning is going to be a year-long process. And for somebody else who's been working in criminal justice and equity for decades their you know next quote-unquote action step is going to look really different and that's okay so you know there's not going to be one action item that's going to apply equally to everyone uh white black or otherwise this is a it's like what Beth always says, it's, it's, our, it's what your individual work is to do. And I know that that is not a great, easy answer, and I wish I could give everyone one. But I think the really leaning into the idea of, like, we're not going to check this off, guys. What is my work to do in the world is not something anyone can tell you easily. They can lead you. They can inspire you. They can empower you. But they cannot tell you.
0: And I would love for us to try to shift those of us who are looking for that list. I would love for us to try to shift our mindsets from like, oh, someone has let the air out of the balloon if I can't check the list to, oh, this this could be a window to a way of being where I don't constantly feel like I'm about to lose everything I was thinking about this is kind of like your story about the bar exam, Sarah, because I had a thought about being a young lawyer in connection with this. I was thinking about how when I first started working as a lawyer, I felt constantly like I was one assignment away from being fired or one mistake away from being sued by a client or one weird interaction away from never getting good assignments again in the firm like there was just always this sense of I've worked really really hard for everything but I could lose it all and so I've got to figure out a way to be smart but not intimidating and insightful but still knowing my place and just c- this careful calibration of everything that I do and So on a cellular level, I understand that sense of just tell me how to get it right, everybody, (laughs) because I've been trying my whole life to just get it right for everybody. And if I can, uh, gosh, Sarah, your enthusiasm is rubbing off on me because I'm going to quote John Craigie again for a second time in one episode. But he has another song where he says, you're doing it wrong, dissecting the bird trying to find the song. And I think that is so beautiful. And that's it. That's this whole thing. We're doing it wrong because we are bringing this sense of scarcity that has been our reality because it is part of the same system that has resulted in all of this inequality and and injustice. And so there is freedom in letting all of that go. We just don't know what that means yet. And that is okay. The beautiful thing is, You don't have to decide in your suburban living room what defund the police needs to mean. You don't have to do that by yourself. You don't have to. You don't have to work out a perspective on everything that's being proposed right now. You don't have to read every single book. You can just examine your own heart. And we get this question from moms so much. You can just start talking to your kids in a way that you'll feel proud of later, knowing that you did your best. And it wasn't perfect. And that's okay, Um, because the shift here, we cannot fix in one month of hashtag activism what has taken centuries to create. We can't. But we can do a lot by just kind of inhabiting ourselves and our world with more awareness and with a desire to ask those questions and a willingness to feel whatever it is we have to feel
1: in the process. You know, this is not a DIY project. This is a movement. You are stepping into the stream of history, right? We are so oriented to individualism and to consumerism. And when Leisha Sharon Harper lays down a word about abandoning hierarchy, like lean into that. Don't see this as a road that you must walk on by yourself where at every intersection you make the wrong turn and your license gets taken away, okay? That's not what this is. That's not what this is. You're a link in the chain. You are participating in the same way that systems have been built for centuries. People have been trying to dismantle them for centuries. This is holy, sacred work. And it is all consuming. It is overwhelming. It is life changing. And It's an invitation, right? And that is beautiful and scary and hard in that we will get it wrong, we will fall, we will be injured, we will suffer because of it.
0: We're links in the chain, and we're not the most important links right now Mm -hmm. because we are part of the overdeveloped aspect of society. We meaning Me and Sarah, fellow white people, you know, and that's okay. That doesn't make us useless or it doesn't make our efforts here unimportant. But it also means that uh, we are going to be led by other people. How freeing is that? Too Like, you don't, you, you know, you don't have to hold on to all that scarcity and that sense of you. You have to know, because in a lot of ways, the work right now is just to let that control go. Just let it go. And listen, I got a lot of messages like, you didn't challenge Lisa Sharon Harper enough. Well, folks, that was not my role in that conversation. I hear you, but my role in that conversation was to listen and learn and to model good listening and good learning uh, and to really allow myself to be open and challenged. There's a lot of unlearning to do before we can learn to be leaders in any sense here. And that's okay, that's good. That is that is good and holy, too.
1: Well, I think that this discussion of control is a good way to pivot into the next common reaction we received. And listen, these are my people, so gather around. It is a reaction that I know well, which is to become the righteous conversation monitor, the language police and Listen, I, I I say this with such love because I have done this. I have done this to my parents. I have done this to my friends. I've probably done it to Beth on this podcast. It is largely, I think, based on personality, but it can be very soothing if you're a certain personality type and you see um, injustice or bad policy, wrong attitudes, and you feel better, because you show up and shut it down. And I get it. I get it. I get it. I know. I just, I cannot say enough that I have done this and will do it again. I will do it again in my life. My personality is so strong. You know, one of the healing attitudes for Enneagram One is other people can learn on their own. Every time I say it, I want to throw up a little bit in my mouth. Well, how would they learn if I don't teach them? How could they possibly (laughs) learn the lesson without me showing up and saying, um, excuse me, no, you have not read this book. You have not read this article. You are using this word wrong. You didn't push hard enough. You're leaning on your own privilege. I'm like, I get it. It's just, and it, the truth is like, you might not even be wrong, but you can be right and also not helpful because shame is not motivating. And especially I think human beings are, finely tuned to instruction that comes from a place of uh, self-righteousness. And not that there's there's not a role for self-righteous, you know, everybody knows Jesus flipping the table is my favorite Jesus, but it's a reaction that we all need to, those of us who who lean that direction need to really self-examine carefully and be careful with. That's, I guess that's I'm trying to be as empathetic as possible, <laughs> because if I don't, I will I will <laughs> I can tip right over into to my self-righteous correction of the self-righteous correction. See this tunnel we've fallen down to. Well, here's a version of this that I strongly relate to.
0: I relate to this from a sense of responsibility. Well, I know better So there's the know better, do better idea out there, which is a a great and important one. I can kind of go into, well, I know better. And so I have all the responsibility in the world to help everyone else know better and do better. Mm
1: -hmm. And I should be doing Mm -hmm. and doing and
0: doing and doing and doing better. Not just one do better, but like infinite do betters uh, because I because now I
1: know. And. It's the more you knows. It's all those the more you know PSAs that we have to blame for this. Doo, right.
0: Doo, doo, doo. And what I have learned through lots of years and dollars in therapy is that it's a special kind of arrogance for me to believe that I'm responsible for everybody else. And it does cross a line into not constructive, especially when you take that kind of responsibility outside of the people who really are your people your community, your sphere of influence, people you actually have relationships with. We can have transformative conversations with people that we have relationships with when we say, hey, I want to share this with you. Here's something that I've learned. Or here's something that I would love for us to talk more about. There's really good work to be done there. When you take that to random internet account, random commenter on another internet account like you have gone beyond that sacred space of good work into something that i think is not healthy for you or helpful to anybody else
1: and look i get that this is it seems impossible right we're saying you can't do you can't just check off a list but if you start going out there and really working hard on people, then you'll be self-righteous. And that's not good enough either. It, it, listen, <laughs> I get it. I get it. You know, I remember so vividly having a conversation with my eldest son where I was sort of trying to teach like, teach him this. Like, you have to walk this line, right, between um, affirming people's feelings and... Or even affirming your own feelings and not letting these feelings lead the way. And he was like, that's confusing. It sounded like you told me to do two different things at the same time. And I was like, oh, good. Then I conveyed what I was (laughs) trying to convey because I am. There is an aspect of sort of walking and chewing gum at the same time here. And it's, you know, I think the other problem is we see lots of different advice coming at people and often coming from the community they're being told to listen to. You know, we had a listener reach out and say, you know, I heard this black man at a rally through tears say, engage your white relatives so that people of color don't have to, you know, fight this out with them. And on the same day, in a Facebook group that I belong to that sort of revolves around this topic, one woman shared a video of a black activist saying, Get off Facebook. Stop fighting with your relatives. That's not where change is going to come from. And so I, I like I understand that is hard, and they're both right. And I don't know <laughs> I don't know how to make that more palatable for people. Sometimes we got to log off Facebook. Sometimes pushing your racist relatives is the best work you can do in that moment. There's not one answer because this is the work of relationships. Word. Sometimes
0: you push your kids and sometimes you pull them. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you give your spouse a break and sometimes you stand your ground and force the issue. We do this all the time in every aspect. This is just the work of being a person who lives with other people in the world. And honestly, we got to stop using the complexity of that around race as an excuse. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I love you. And It is both hard and not hard because it is what we're uniquely calibrated to do as human beings by design. And we can do this. And the biggest thing is just do it and be willing to feel whatever you feel when someone says, no, not that way for me today, because that's going to happen. That happens in my marriage all the time, in my friendships all the time. No, not today. Like, if I sit here and lick my wounds and feel rejected every time somebody says, you have not assessed the situation correctly this time, I would never have a sense of relationship with anyone. So it is both hard and it is not hard. You just have to step into it and decide it's important enough to do.
1: And I think that's, you know, what we mean by giving grace. Yes. This is what we mean. This is a big lift. (laughs) You know, dismantling systematic racism and asking our country to face its sins is a big lift. Some, a lift that people of color and leaders in this movement have been doing since they were children and a lift that some white people are facing for the first time. It's all true. It's all true. We are starting at different places. We are facing different challenges. There is not going to be a simple answer or one path forward. But the reason that I feel hopeful in the face of all of this is that I do think Americans are up for it. I do. What I see in the streets from teeny tiny towns in Southern Illinois. Two hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia and Tokyo is people saying, I'm up for it. I'm going to try. Let's go. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. And that is really hopeful to me, not because I'm a Pollyanna, not because I think. We're done because I see so many human beings saying, I'm ready to work hard. I'm ready to work hard. And that is incredibly hopeful for me. So that brings
0: us to our third category of
1: reaction. <laughs> In case you thought we were ending
0: on a hopeful note, which hopefully we will get back to, I think, no, I think we will. I think this fits really nicely. It is that complexity, that sense of, I can't come in and fix this. And therefore, I'm going to be defensive. That I think leads to that third category. I'm going to say, sounds too hard to envision a community without law enforcement as I've grown up understanding it. Or, I back the blue, so I can't engage in these discussions. Or, look how far we've come. Aren't we done on race? Or, Candace Owens says, that actually black people feel this way. Or what about Antifa? You know, a whole list of things. And I don't want to tick those off for you as though any of those are insignificant or meaningless. I don't want to be defensive of them, uh, dismissive of them. Here is how I choose to think about this. I can spend all my time on the aspect of what's happening that I feel critical of. Or I can spend my time leaning into the aspects that feel true and productive to me. So someone said that uh, the way that I responded on Instagram when we were asked about Candace Owens was petty because I said, I'm just not gonna seriously debate Her position because I don't think that she made this video in the interest of a good faith discussion. I particularly feel that way because of the amount of time she chose to devote to smearing a dead man, even as she said he shouldn't be dead, and we all agreed with that. So I could spend a whole lot of time on the aspects of her video that I feel critical of, or I could just say overall, here is one woman's opinion go listen to others too people who are sharing this video white people who are sharing this video yeah there's going to be diversity of thought among black people just as there is diversity of thought among white people i would not say to anybody on this planet you should only listen to rush limbaugh and that is your representation of how all white people feel about all things that's ridiculous and so I think the work with your family and friends who share videos like that is not to point by point refute them it's the same thing we talked about when we talked about pandemic. What is underneath this? What is it that makes this particular piece of media compelling to you? And that's how I feel about the less supportive comments we received about last week's episodes. Look, What is really going on here? What is it that makes you so uncomfortable? What are you pushing back against? No one is asking you to embrace a long list of policy proposals exactly as random protester in the street would outline them. There is still room for disagreement about how to move forward here. More than that... This is like the dumbest conversation to have in terms of the parties when what we could be talking about is, what does this community need? There are going to be a multitude of approaches and there should be community by community. Yay. If you are in that defensive space, then what I would urge you to do is not try to figure this out on a national level, just as we've urged people in other spaces not to try to figure this out on a national level but to dig into your local community and ask what could be done better here? What could be done differently here? What are the problems here that we could name? And how does race play into the way that we identify those problems, talk about them and solve for them? There are ways to be in this conversation that just don't require you to think about the president and that would be really healthy for a second too.
1: Yeah, to me, not to lean on the heaviest of cliches, but it's just, it's missing the forest for the trees. Like this digging, digging, digging. But what about this girl? Or dig, 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 dig. What about these particular protests? Is this Antifa? Or what about this very singular cop and policy? Like, it's just, it feels, it feels so striving. Like, it just feels like there's such a, A trying, a really deliberate effort to ignore the sea of humanity filling the streets in every state of this country and countries across the globe. Like it just feels like so, so effortful to miss the crying out of all of these people. Look at all of these people. What type of mental gymnastics do you have to do to turn away from the thousands of voices rising up to tune in to the voice of Candace Owens? I don't understand. I'm a person who likes patterns. I like trends. I like looking and seeing what is the big picture. And the big picture is not hard to miss. You have to deliberately turn away to not see what is happening in America right now. And I get that Candace Owens is an enticing voice on a certain level. She's good at what she does because she gets paid to do it. But like, man, don't turn away. Don't turn away. If you can do nothing else, just face the fury pouring out of the mouths of so many Americans and just listen. Yeah, and don't write it off
0: because it's fury. I think that there are many of us, I fall into this category sometimes, who really tune out a person if they seem too angry or too emotional in any respect. And that's not fair here. That's not fair. We should all be angry about what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Trayvon Martin And on and on and on and on. We should all be angry about that. It's okay to be angry about that. Don't dismiss voices because they're angry. And when you say things like, well, I just feel like we're trying to divide ourselves by race. That's missing the point again. People of color don't want to lead with, well, I'm black or I'm Hispanic or whatever. But we have created a world in which that changes their experience of the world. And if you are talking about that in a dismissive way, it means that you're not listening to them. And you're not willing to say, hey, maybe my experience being white has changed the way the world treats me. We just have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to feel whatever comes with everything happening here. And we are capable of that. It is much easier to be in this seat than the seat of someone who the world wasn't built for. It's important to recognize
1: that too. Well, and I think back to your previous point, a lot of that undercurrent is, why should I listen to them when no one listens to me? Because of a lot of the systems that the protesters in the streets are crying out about, many Americans don't feel heard or seen. I get that. But I don't understand how shutting someone else out, shutting someone else down, makes you feel more heard. it's this It's this scarcity mindset that we have been sold in. It is a lie. It is a lie. That's what Lisa Sharon Harper is talking about when she talks about abandoning hierarchy. That my position wins only if your position loses. That my child succeeds only if your child fails. That I can only move up in the line if you stay at the back. It's a lie. It's a lie. And if you look at the streets filling up with people You can see that. You can hear that. They're not saying, I want a place and you can't have one. They're saying there's a place for everyone, but we got to change the way we operate.
0: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that.
1: Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, we went on a little road trip, and (laughs) there were a few bumps. There was some rain in which the bottom of our tent turned into a waterbed. I have video. It was very exciting. There was a cabin filled with, um, how can I say this politely, Mouse droppings, Yeah, I guess that's just, I just need to say it how it was. And so, you know, a, a trip that was supposed to be relaxing was not relaxing. <laughs> and yet, we still made memories. We still had fun. Uh, we saw beautiful sights across the state of Kentucky. And I guess I'm just, you know, thinking about... What it really means to uh, take a break, relax, go on a trip—you know—the whole—is it a—is it a family trip or is it a vacation? What does that mean in 2020? Do I have any of that? Any real—do re- I have any real relaxation coming for me in the next few months? Uh, do I even need it? Is this like—you know—I think that's this place we're in as a country and so many of us as individuals as we deal with the fallout of the pandemic and we deal with sort of the protests and all these deep things we're dealing with is, you know, maybe we're just in the midst of a real battle and we're getting stronger and we might be tired, but, you know, I'm just rethinking a lot of the Self-care, processing, relaxation, rules I'd set up for myself because they just seem to no longer apply in vacation or any other context right now, including with, you know, social media and all that stuff. And it's just it's hard, but I think I'm okay, right? I think I'm doing okay, even though there's this voice in my head that's like, how could you possibly do it? Okay? We're dealing with all this stress and anxiety. And you're working all the time and you're never getting off your phone and your kids are around all the time and all these things that I've told myself I have to escape. And, but there's like this, this devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder going, yeah, but you don't, you're okay. You're okay. I think, I think you're handling this okay. And this is just the new reality. And we're going to take it a day at a time. That's definitely what I had to do with my little road trip. Let me tell you, take it a day at a time.
0: I've been relatedly thinking about, The forced sabbatical that COVID has created. There was a tweet from Anne Helen Peterson that I thought was really interesting when she said, you know, all the people saying, hey, people are out at these protests because they're bored. Maybe should rethink that and say people are out of these protests now because capitalism's exhausting and people have energy for this work because they're not exhausted and run ragged the way that we usually are. I'm paraphrasing. I thought that was really good and there's something important in that and how I think it's, I think a lot of things are going to shake loose, as you said on Instagram, over the next few months because we've had some time and because there has been sort of a stripping away of some of the activities and um, opportunities that we sort of numb out with. And I think there's something really good about that. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, even with the reopening of things, Uh, I do not have a desire to go back to the pace that we lived at before all of this. And a lot of the things that would have consumed that time just are clearly unnecessary, right, have been revealed over a few months of not doing them to be just clearly unnecessary and unhelpful. And so I've been thinking also about how do I restructure my life so that I stop thinking about this as, well, while this is happening, and I more think of just every day as another chance to get up and live my life.
1: Yes. It's like I keep, I want to, I still live in the dang, like, semester. Like, it is so hard to abandon the idea that, like, I'm getting someplace, and then I'll be done, and then I can relax. Yeah. Like, even though I I feel like I've done work on that, it's just so hard to let that go.
0: It is. And, I think something that's really pushed me on this is re- recognizing that school might not start as it normally would. And so it, it really even more forces me to think, you know, I have to be able to live here in my house and do my work with my family. Like this cannot be just a container of time. And so here are some really beautiful things that can come out of that. My kids are spending more time outside. They are taking on more responsibility around the house. They are coming to understand better that I am a professional and I have work to do and so does my husband. And that they need to have their own lives and interests and that we're not their cruise directors. And also for me, that the work will be there too. And so it's a beautiful day. I can sit on the patio at four o'clock and just watch them play or chat with my husband or whatever it is. Like there are so many ways of just being that I have not permitted myself before because I've looked at all time as those containers. I think that's really good what you said about the semester. So I don't know. That's that's kind of what's been on my mind, too.
1: Well, and I mean, I definitely saw that with my kids over this trip. Right. I mean, there were two nights in a row that about eight or nine o'clock we had to say, okay, everything we thought was going to happen is not. And everybody has to pitch in to get us to the new spot from like being in a tent during a thunderstorm and then packing everything up in the rain up a hill to our van to, oh, here's a spot. We're going to relax the next three days to be like, "Mm -mm, nope, we got to get up. We're going to move again. And like, they're so resilient. They're so capable of doing that. Like, they're so capable of pushing themselves and seeing like, oh, I pushed myself. I did it. That was scary. We got through it. That was hard. We did it. And just reminding yourself, like you just, there's only so many times you can say like, I want my kids to be resilient. I want my kids to have grit. Sometimes you just have to see them get through it, as I think so many of us are right now, to just really bring it home. Like, they're up for this. They're up for challenges, as children across the world and throughout history have been. I think we're all up for that. We're all realizing, we're all facing, and we're all really coming home to what we're made of. And I think that's really powerful and really intense and... I don't know, I guess just the work of being human.
0: Well, as you go about the work of being human, thank you for sharing your time and attention and your thoughts with us. We'll be back here with you on Friday. We'll be on The Nuanced Life tomorrow and on social media and in all the places. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Tansu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported.
0: Our executive producers are Allison Lusader, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Barry Kaufman, David McWilliams, Emily Neasley, Janice Elliott, Jared Minson, Joshua Allen, Martha Brunitsky, Sarah Ralph, Tiffany Hasler, Timothy Miller, and Tracy Putoff.
1: To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
0: You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.